You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Coronavirus Crisis Update. I'm J. Stephen Morrison, Senior Vice President at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. This week, we hosted an expert panel for the CSIS Schieffer series, The Next Phase of COVID-19. Andrew and I were joined by Jeremy Konendijk, Executive Director of USAID's COVID-19 Task Force, who opened the event with a detailed keynote address outlining USAID's vision for addressing the current pandemic emergency and USAID's plans for long-term health security preparedness around the world. We then went into a panel discussion for the next hour on U.S. global health leadership and how the United States can turn rhetoric into action. Andrew, Jeremy, and I were joined by Julie Gerberding, co-chair of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security and Executive Vice President and Chief Patient Officer of Merck, along with Gary Edson, President of the COVID Collaborative and a Principal of Civic Enterprises. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Before we get to our panel today, we have with us a very special guest who's going to stay with us for the panel. Jeremy Conine-Dyke is the Executive Director of USAID's COVID Task Force. He's one of the United States' most talented emergency response professionals that is out there, and he previously served in the Obama administration from 2013 to 2017 as director of USAID's Office of U.S. Foreign Disaster Assistance, where he led the U.S. government's response to international disasters. He led major U.S. government humanitarian responses to things like the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Jeremy, thank you for being here with us today. We uh, really want to hear what you have to say. Thanks so much, Andrew. That's that's a very generous introduction. Um, so I, I want to talk today about uh, how how USAID and the administration at large are seeing the outlook. Um, the intro there highlighted the challenges that we're seeing in India and and South Asia, and I think it just underscores the the the, the challenging point that we are at, uh, kind of caught in this gap for the year ahead with the hope of vaccines on the horizon, but the reality of large scale vaccination still somewhat distant for the, the for the world at large. So for almost a year and a half now, the world has been experiencing a global health crisis unlike anything that we have seen in any of our lifetimes. Uh, and the US government is, is absolutely committed to doing, uh, to doing our part uh, and playing the leadership role that the world is accustomed to, to seeing from the United States to help uh, to help lead the world out of this pandemic, and also to do that in a way that leaves the world better prepared to prevent, detect, and respond to future biological threats. So the work of USAID, which I am which I am leading, is going to be central to this effort. And I just want to talk through today some of our plans for tackling this next phase uh, of the pandemic and the challenges that it holds. So when I last spoke to CSIS four months ago, the number of fully vaccinated Americans. Um, was 10 million. Today, it's it's uh, over 124 million and growing due to the Biden administration's robust focus on accelerating vaccine availability. And while we still have uh, many millions left to vaccinate in this country, uh, we're making substantial progress uh, and 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 recognize as well that the United States will not be fully safe uh, as long as the virus rages on in other countries and continues to replicate and generate dangerous new variants. And, and the current surge in South Asia really underscores the devastating risks and, and potential consequences of uncontrolled global transmission and the urgency of accelerating efforts to end the pandemic. And so USAID's work on COVID-19 is going to be central to this, and it will build on decades of experience that the agency has in leading complex global health responses, including uh, the response that I helped to lead in 2014 and 15 in my previous tenure at USAID on the West Africa Ebola outbreak. Uh, but the complexity of even that challenge really pales in comparison to what we're seeing in the present moment, which is a uh, an overlapping set of health, humanitarian, and development crises, each of which are global in scope and historic in scale. And that is why the administration is moving rapidly to to expand our global response efforts using the the resources in the American Rescue Plan. So USAID has been working closely with the CDC, 
the Department of State, uh, the Department of Defense, the Department of the Treasury, and other other uh, partner agencies to begin rolling out the more than $11 billion provided under the American Rescue Plan uh, to the administration for the international response. And as my colleague Gail Smith and I outlined in our Senate hearing a few weeks ago, we're doing this through a comprehensive plan to both tackle the virus itself, but also to address the acute human and systemic challenges and impacts that it is causing beyond the health sector, uh, all while working to build stronger global readiness for the future. And so we're pursuing five major objectives. The first is uh, to, uh, the first two are focused on saving lives from the virus itself. So the first objective, uh, not surprisingly, is to accelerate equitable global access to vaccines. But we also recognize that uh, we can't wait on the vaccines to arrive, that, that we need to do work in the immediate term to save, uh, to save lives. And that's why the second objective w uh, focuses on saving lives in the more immediate term uh, and preventing transmission through support to clinical interventions and uh, strengthening public health measures that will both uh, mitigate the, 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 the number of new cases generated and save more of the lives that can be saved from the, the, the severe cases that emerge. Uh, but of course, the, this virus is not only uh, causing human suffering through d the disease itself, it's also threatening lives in other ways. And that's why the third objective of the plan focuses on the acute uh, the acute human impacts that are emerging in other areas. We're seeing uh, significant food insecurity and, and risk of famine in many humanitarian settings. We're seeing severe disruption to education, severe disruption to household livelihoods. Uh, the first net increases in global extreme poverty since the Asian financial crisis of the of the late 1990s. So uh, those human level impacts beyond the, the, the virus itself are, um, are, are, are an urgent priority for the administration, uh, particularly on the humanitarian front. Uh, and the fourth and related kind of is the systemic level. Uh, so the, uh, the, the virus is causing systemic risks that uh, that that we that we have to manage in order to preserve global freedom and prosperity. You know, we're seeing threats to we're seeing deterior further deterioration and accelerating deterioration uh, of uh, human rights in some countries. Uh, risks to governance, risks of enhanced conflict, and um, and so concern that those ripple effects from the pandemic could uh, could cause future instability. And so we're going to work on 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 tackling that. And then and then finally, the last objective is to build back a better global health uh, security architecture. Um, and I'll talk a, a bit about that at the end of, of my remarks. But uh, with the world right now in the grips of this new wave of covid transmission uh, driven by deteriorating conditions in South Asia and across Latin America, I want to focus today primarily on the first two objectives and how we're going to try to bring um, to get control of the virus itself through our vaccination efforts and through our, our, our life saving clinical and public health interventions. So on the vaccine front. You know, we know that vaccines are the best tool available over the medium term to bring the pandemic under control, and we see the urgency of doing so. Um, as President Biden said a week ago, now that the U.S. has made such tremendous strides on vaccination at home, we're in a stronger position to expand our efforts to vaccinate the world at large. And that's why the president said the U.S. is going to become the arsenal of vaccines, just as we were the arsenal of democracy in earlier generations. So we see several urgent priorities for delivering on that. Uh, the first you know, we, we want to approach this in a way that leads with our values and leads with science. Um, so in accelerating global access to vaccines, we're going to demonstrate the, 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 the innovation and the ingenuity of the American people and, and our commitment to taking a science-driven approach to, uh, to tackling uh, vaccine availability uh, and expanding vaccine availability. So, you know, when it comes to doing that, um, we're not, as the president said, going to use our vaccines to secure favors from other countries. We're going to use them to end, to accelerate the end to the pandemic and to be driven by the best public health strategies for doing so. Um, we also recognize that when, when it comes to vaccine, uh, uh, vaccine availability, scarcity is the enemy of equity. And so the only real path to vaccine equity lies in finding ways to ramp up global vaccine production uh, it's not going to be easy. The world needs to produce up to an additional 14 billion doses of vaccine uh, in order to, 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 to cover the global population. And we have to do that on a global vaccine architecture or infrastructure that is built to produce only about 4 billion doses a year. 
So we are taking steps to expand global supply, such as our commitment through the Quad Partnership to invest, um, uh, to make Development Finance Corporation investments in vaccine production in India. And we're also actively pursuing other deals to expand supply similarly in other parts of the world. Um, and, and we'll have more to say about that in the, in the near future. Um, we recognize as well that expanding supply hinges on securing and optimizing the use of vaccine production outputs. Uh, there's actually more global production capacity available in the world than we're able to make use of at the moment because of a lack of manufacturing inputs. And so USAID and our, our interagency partners are working with uh, international partners like Gavi, WHO, and CEPI to explore options to both expand the production and availability of those inputs, but also to make better and more optimal use of them um, uh, around a, a strategy for vaccinating as many as possible. Um, the global financing landscape is also uh, an important focus of ours. You know, it, it's striking when you look at how the world collectively is financing vaccines. It looks a little bit like how the U.S. was was uh, procuring PPE uh, at national level a year ago. So just as devolving PPE procurement to individual states last year led to inefficient competition and a lot of uncertainty being signaled to, to, to the PPE market, so too does the fragmented nature of vaccine procurement globally today signal uncertainty to manufacture to industry and 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 res result in inefficient market outcomes. And so, you know, we think COVAX as well as regional partnerships like the AU vaccine platform are really really critical to to finding ways to aggregate and consolidate demand to send clearer uh, and more certain signals to market so that vaccine producers can have certainty of financing and certainty of demand and and be able to scale up production on that basis. And and um, so the, the U.S. is doing uh, an important, uh, a very important part of that with our uh, historic $2 billion announcement of uh, support to, to Gavi for the COVAX initiative and another $2 billion uh, to come over the, 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 uh, the coming year. Um, but of course, there are other pieces of this equation as well. And one of the, you know, one of the big gaps that, that we see right now is the financing through the multilateral development banks, which have put forward tens of billions in vaccine financing, but are having trouble translating that into actual deals. And so we're working with the MDBs and we're working with COVAX to find uh, to find some ways to aggregate that MDB financing in a more coherent way um, so that it's not every country pursuing its own deals, but rather partnering and consolidating around a kind of larger scale procurement mechanisms, uh, ideally through COVAX, but also potentially through regional level efforts. Um, and you know, finally, uh, dose sharing, as the president announced last week, will be an important part of the equation as well. And, and we see the, the, the announcement to share 80 million US-owned doses as a really important step uh, with a significant share of those going through COVAX. And that's going to be an important means of bridging some of the critical supply gaps that COVAX is facing right now uh, caused by the disruptions of Indian vaccine exports. But you know, regardless of how much vaccine gets produced and how many vaccines the U.S. is able and other countries are able to, 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 to send, um, ultimately the impact depends on getting shots into arms. And that's why we're also investing resources in uh, country readiness and and, uh, and deployment. So USAID has already uh, in the last few months provided $75 million of new funding to support vaccine readiness in more than 40 countries. And with the new ARP resources, we're going to be expanding that dramatically to cover, uh, to cover uh, every country where we work. Um, and, um, and so this, you know, this this process over the next year of expanding country readiness in in uh, in link in sync with expanding supply is how we will hopefully bring an end to the uh, bring an end to the acute phase of the pandemic. But of course, um, we've got a long way to go and a lot of work before that begins to really bring down cases. And so we can't let that that light at the end of the tunnel that is provided by vaccines distract us from the immediate task is hand at hand. So approximately 80% of total global cases have occurred in the last six months, and we're seeing a dire surge right now in South Asia, 
that may provide a sneak preview of what the coming year will look like for for most of the develop for much of the developing world. The the Latin America region is facing dire conditions and represents 28% of the death toll with mortality continuing to climb in that region. We're seeing troubling signs of new waves of cases emerging in parts of Africa and uh, numerous countries there have re reported um, new upticks in cases in the past few weeks. So uh, USAID is also taking a range of measures to support countries to fight the virus in the immediate term through clinical and public health measures while we while we simultaneously work to scale up vaccine uh, availability. And it's, it's going to be really critical in the months ahead that all countries double down on measures to prevent and mitigate transmission. And this will mean protecting health workers, reinforcing risk communication investments, promoting mask wearing, distancing and ventilation measures, supporting diagnostics, surveillance and contact tracing. And you know, we're working to, to ensure generally that uh, you say partner countries have the tools, the supplies and the capabilities to save lives and avoid high death tolls. We're also focused on ensuring that communities receive quick, accurate and actionable information about COVID-19 and how it spreads. So our partners so far have reached more than 2 million people with uh, 200 million, excuse me, people with critical public health information in more than 85 countries. Um, and you know these critical interventions to slow transmission are going to be really, really critical to preventing uh, as many hotspots from emerging as possible. At the same time, we know that hotspots will still emerge, especially as the proliferating variants of the virus develop more dangerous characteristics. And so we will be providing enhanced support to health systems to ensure that they have the tools they need to manage those surges in transmission when they occur. And that means things like ensuring adequate availability of, of PPE, critical medicines and equipment, diagnostics and oxygen. Over the past 15 months, we've sent millions of units of PPE around the world and uh, just in the past few weeks have deployed numerous flights to South Asia with shipments of PPE and other critical materials. Um, we are we, we have sent seven to India, another three to Nepal, and are preparing additional flights that will leave in the weeks ahead to the to the wider region. Another critical priority is going to be helping countries manage the burden on their health systems and save more of the severe cases. So in Africa, mortality among critical COVID patients uh, was found to be 48% in a recent Lancet article compared to a global, global average of 31%. So it makes clear that more can be done to save savable lives. And so we'll be expanding our support for clinical services, for training and for supply of critical items. Oxygen in particular will be a priority for USAID in the months ahead. Many of the severe cases of COVID-19 can be saved with timely oxygen therapy, but uh, but health facilities in the developing world have a very uneven uh, capacity to provide this kind of treatment. So we'll be working to scale that up. Um, and finally, I wanna say a few words on the importance of good emergency management. Uh, when I traveled to West Africa with Tom Frieden in 2014 at the height of the Ebola outbreak there, our first recommendation was not to build more treatment units or send more PPE. It was to install coherent, unified incident management structures at country level. And in many countries, you know, we've seen COVID-19 takes advantage uh, where national responses are fractured or siloed or poorly coordinated um, between ministries or between central and subnational levels of government. And so just as we've done here with our own White House task force for the United States, it's going to be critical for all countries to ensure that they have a unified pandemic management team with clear authority and unified accountability. And a critically important element of that must be enhanced diagnostic testing and surveillance. Um, you know, if we can't see what's happening and if countries can't see what's happening in their own countries, it's very hard to manage a crisis when you're blind. So we're seeing widespread gaps in testing continuing across many of the countries where USAID works. Uh, Nepal is reporting positivity rates of over 50% in some areas. We're seeing positivity in sub-Saharan Afri African countries elevated to alarming levels even as uh, case detection remains low, which suggests that what, you know, the, the low case numbers in many developing countries are, are an artifact of low testing rather than an actual reflection of low transmission. So there's an enormous amount of work to do to bring this virus under control over the next several years. Um, and the United States is committed to not only ending the pandemic, the present pandemic, but also building back a better world. 
one that is prepared to prevent, detect, and respond to future biological threats. And with the World Health Assembly meeting this week, it's important to reinforce that even as we focus on continuing the fight against the present pandemic, we must keep attention focused on building back a stronger global architecture. So the past year has reinforced the importance of the global health security agenda and the importance of the reforms that WHO made following the West Africa outbreak of Ebola, but it has also revealed continued critical gaps in global readiness. And so much of our work over the months ahead uh, will focus on building global consensus around how to address those gaps. And several areas of emphasis for the U.S. are going to include stronger pandemic alert and early warning systems, enhancing the transparency of national reporting on, on emerging health risks, and shielding WHO risk assessment and response guidance from political pressure. And we are also committed, as we've said uh, numerous times before, to addressing the absence of a global mechanism for financing country health security preparedness, which, which we see as a, as a major gap. But we can't do any of this alone. The Biden administration realizes that we will only achieve these goals if we work in partnership. And that's why we have returned to WHO, we have joined the COVAX initiative and the ACT Accelerator, and we are expanding our efforts with regional and multilateral partners. And we're doing this with by mobilizing the full force of the US government. We will do so driven by our scientific knowledge and our humanitarian values. And as the president said, we will do so not as a means to gain political favors, but rather as a means to fight and end the pandemic, driven by the knowledge that what benefits and protects the world ultimately benefits and protects us here at home. Thank you. Great, thank you very much for that, Jeremy. Um, with that, I'd like to uh, introduce our panel. Today we have with us um, Dr. Julie Gerberding, who co-chairs the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. Um, during both terms of President George W. Bush, she was director of the CDC, where she led the agency through SARS and over 40 emergency responses to public health crises. Uh, Dr. Gerberding is currently executive vice president and chief patent, I'm sorry, chief patient officer at Merck. Bet a bunch of people make that mistake, Dr. Gerberding. Uh, Gary Edson is also with us. Uh, Gary is president of the co uh, founder and president of the COVID Collaborative and a principal of Civic Enterprises. Um, during his long and distinguished service in government, Gary served as deputy national security advisor and deputy national economic advisor to President George W. Bush. He established the groundbreaking Millennium Challenge Corporation to fight global poverty. Uh, to, to fight global poverty, uh, he co-led the launch of the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, also known as PEPFAR. Um, we also have with us Dr. Steve Morrison, my colleague, who is uh, Senior Vice President at CSIS. Um, he's also the director of our Global Health Policy Center. During Steve's time at CSIS, he's directed several high-level uh, commissions and has had more impact on policy than just about anyone that I know. Um, panel, we just heard from Jeremy and I wanna get your collective reaction to what he just said. Um, Dr. Gerberding, can we go to you first? Well, sure, and you know, it would take me a long time to present all of my collective reactions because there is a lot there, which is the consequence of the complexity of the problems that we're tackling on a global basis. Um, a, a couple of overarching things. I think the uh, you've laid out what really is a very comprehensive and complex agenda, and it's pretty clear that um, it functions under the umbrella of a strategic national doctrine that um, needs a little polish and uh, uh, ongoing um, updating in a sense as the pandemic refreshes. So um, we all know that this takes a whole of government response and yet we have some track records of success, PEPFAR being one um, which was a slower moving emergency, but nevertheless a pandemic that is still with us. Um, we saw this kind of um, broad government engagement in the malaria initiative. Um, Global health security agenda is another example. So we have, a, I think, a growing confidence that when our government is operating from a really clearly articulated strategic platform, and brings together the capacities of uh, various government components, including USAID, CDC, NIH, um, obviously other components of the State Department, Commerce, et cetera, we can really uh, do amazing things. 
um, there are some gaps in the agenda now, and one of them you ended with, that's the financing gap for the global health security agenda. So I think we, we need to come back to that point. But um, I, I'd like to be optimistic that with government leadership from the White House, with a strategic doctrine that's refreshed in the context of what we've learned in the last 15 months, and then um, a, a working mechanism to bring the best of what our various agencies can do or should be doing, I think we can really move much faster than we have um, for the first year of this pandemic. So that's kind of my optimistic point of view. I'm not underestimating the challenges, and perhaps we'll come back to one or two of those. But, but thank you, Jeremy, for, for laying out what I think are the it's the must-do list, and um, good job, Gary. Can we get your thoughts? Yeah, I was I was uh, very glad to hear about the focus on inputs and financing, country uh, readiness, clinical services, and of course the global architecture and readiness for the future. Um, I think what Jeremy laid out are a lot of promising steps, all in the right direction. And as Julie mentioned, they reflect the complexity of the problem we're confronting. But I, but I still get the sense of a, a tapestry of actions rather than the straight line of a strategy. Um, they still lack, I think, the magnitude and urgency that the current crisis demands. As, as Jeremy noted, the next three to six months are going to be critical to try and limit sickness and death in India and Brazil and prevent explosive growth of COVID elsewhere. But instead of a, of a bold and comprehensive strategy, strategy, I think what I heard was a series of largely tactical steps uh, signaling support as the administration has done for a patent waiver here, donating 80 million doses there, um, that kind of thing. I, I think if, if President Biden wants, as Jeremy noted, the United States to become the arsenal, the world's arsenal of vaccines, he needs to take exponential, not incremental action um, immediately and on four fronts. First, donate much greater numbers of excess doses immediately and continue to donate as they become available. It's been estimated that the United States is gonna have some 300 million excess doses come July and the EU and the other G7 can add significantly to that. And in fact, we've proposed that the US leverage its own leadership to secure a pledge of the upcoming G7 to collectively share at least 1 billion doses by the end of the year. Second, Jeremy noted, um, we need to expand additional short-term manufacturing capacity for US authorized vaccines here and expand the regional capacity uh, he noted the quad investment in, in biologically in India and the partnership uh, apparently under contemplation with South Korea, which would be fabulous. And to the extent that the Development Finance Corporation can fund similar uh, arrangements in South Africa and elsewhere, that would be all to the benefit. And this, of course, is in our interest to ensure that we can speedily produce boosters and in new vaccines while the excess production could serve global needs. Third, as Jeremy noted, we need to support distribution delivery infrastructure, especially in low-income countries, to translate vaccines into vaccinations. That's clearly a mission for USAID, working with other agencies, building on PEPFAR, literally and figuratively. And then finally, we need to invest and accelerate the development of a sustainable global distributed network of new manufacturing capacity in low and middle income countries, Africa and elsewhere, not only to combat this pandemic, but to ensure we're prepared to fight the next one. I think that prioritizing those activities in the next six months is gonna be critical um, to our success in ensuring that the globe doesn't split into vaccine haves and vaccine have nots which would really imperil um, not only uh, the ability of those countries to combat the pandemic, but our ability to end the pandemic here. Steve. Can we get your Thank reaction, you. Steve? Thank yeah. you so much. Um, um, uh, we stand by uh, those, those 
key points that Gary just made, which were laid out in the open letter that we issued maybe 10 or 12 days ago, uh, the COVID collaborative that Gary leads, um, along with our friends at Duke, Mark McClellan and Krishna uh, Adaya Kumar and, um, and CGD, Amanda Glassman, Rachel Silverman. I think those are, we stand by those points and I think those are very, very clear. I'll add a few um, remarks. First of all, uh, Jeremy, I think we need to commend you for the leadership that you have demonstrated over the last six months, which has moved us very far forward. You've assembled a strong team at USAID and you've been working obviously collaboratively across the interagency to try and drive towards where we are today and beyond. And you've really made a major contribution and, and, and we're grateful to you for that. Uh, and, and, the, and the sweep of what you've laid out is very compelling. And of course, the, the, the gravity and force and urgency of what we face today, which makes it very difficult to think much beyond today. And so you've carefully sort of laid out that spectrum of things that we have to somehow be able to move forward uh, simultaneously. We cannot lose sight of those things. So we're very, we're very indebted to you. You've, you've, you've moved us forward. We still are short of having a true national strategy. I know you're working hard on that and we'll see that national strategy. We do need a national strategy that has targets, that has numbers, that is bold, that puts money against these, these things. We do have quite a significant amount of money that's already been committed, which is a great advantage that we face uh, uh, today that we have that we can come forward with some bold ideas and ask for more. And we need to do that rapidly, very rapidly. The, thing, the second point I'd make is we do not yet have a coherent uh, 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 leadership team in place. We have different people that are leading in different spots within our government. We have Jeff Seintz, who's been uh, appointed by the president to, to preside over both the domestic and the international. But on the international side, we do not yet have what you could say is a coherent and cohesive uh, uh, team, leadership team. Uh, we have something that is much more fractured than that. Um, in terms of who's in charge, yes, Jeff Science in charge. Beneath that level, it becomes a little murkier on which set of issues are people in charge and who's, who's gonna carry this mission forward. Um, the president plays the obviously the absolutely pivotal role um, in, in, in staking out where we want to carry this forward, making the case to the American people in a dramatic way, and 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 bringing that across uh, very rapidly. We are in the season right now with the advent of WHA, the World Health Assembly, followed by the G7 coming up June 11th to 13th. Those moments when presidential leadership can be can be voiced, certainly in the G7, but we can do a lot to get forward where we're going. The, G, the G20 EU summit from last Friday offered a few, a few promising uh, 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 commitments, but basically was a disappointment. Uh, it did not bring forward uh, uh, much evidence of high level statesmanship and stateswomanship committed to this issue. It's, that has been a chronic problem since this pandemic began in trying to get states leaders, leaders mobilized around a common a vision of moving ahead and making serious grand commitments. And that has that is still absent. Uh, and I think they, they, we, we, we took away from last Friday a, another sober, sobering indicator of, of the world that we live in, which is one where money is short, people are consumed with their own internal crises, and the world is very fractured uh, in terms of the divisions that exist among the major powers particularly between the U.S. And, and China. There are a number of issues I'd like to explore in the course of our conversation around USAID's special assets and contributions, how those size up against CDC, and also what muscle can be brought to bear by AID and others in trying to get firms like Moderna to come forward more proactively uh, in terms of voluntary licensing and tech transfer, which is gonna be fundamental to that sort of vision that Gary laid out. Thank you so much. Okay, so panel, let me ask you, if we don't have someone senior that's completely in charge, what needs to happen to get some single person in charge? And who would be charged, tasked with pulling together a national strategy? And when would it be released?
Uh, we should probably turn to Gary to answer this because he's been there and done that. But I can I can at least address it from experiences that I had in the Bush administration. Uh, you know, I don't think that out of the starting gate we had it all worked out on 911 or when the first crises of that administration appeared. But very quickly it became obvious that we needed a coordinating mechanism that was built to support the presidential directives and the presidential strategy as it unfolded. Um, and that got easier as time went on. The Homeland Security Council actually worked fairly well in that regard, at least in my experience. Um, having a, a designated White House official responsible for these activities. In Obama administration, we saw the Ebola czar. I think that was a really important co coordinating role that held the power of the president, but also the accountability for articulating the strategy and then holding the feet to the fire of the people who had to execute it. Uh, it, it when we were preparing for influenza pandemic during the Bush administration, I think I think CDC was given 128 um, requirements that we needed to fulfill with timelines, deliverables, and budget attached to them. And so we had to sit down and figure out how were we going to fulfill our critical requirements as we tried to prepare our nation for an influenza pandemic. And every other agency was doing the same thing. So we would come together around the table and share experiences, sometimes you know, learning, sometimes a vigorous debate about who should be doing what. But we eventually, in my opinion, um, certainly didn't approach nirvana, but we came a whole that was greater than the sum of the parts. And we did move the needle of the dial of preparedness during that period of time. We were fortunate because we also had investment from our Congress that allowed us to sustain that level of engagement and progressive preparedness over a period of time. And of course, when those investments aren't sustained, then it's very easy to understand why that mechanism would fall apart. But I would ask Gary, because you were there when a similar mechanism was established for PEPFAR, so maybe your experience can complement or contrast with what my experience was. Gary, I think Gary, you're, you're muted. muted. I think what Julie says is is exactly right. Um, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, in my experience, there's no substitute for presidential leadership. Um, you know, PEPFAR wasn't called the president's emergency plan by accident. I, I was there. It was intentional. It was meant to be owned by whomever occupied the Oval Office. And the presidential ownership of, of, of an issue is critical. The, the global AIDS coordinator may have sat at, at the State Department, but the president owned PEPFAR. And, the, and, president, and there's no substitute for that kind of presidential leadership and direction. In this case, the pan global pandemic response has to be owned by the White House and directed out of the White House. And if, and if Jeff Zients doesn't have either the perception or the reality of the authority to act on the president's behalf and, and to, to show that the White House owns that issue, then something needs to be done about it. Um, but it, the direction has to come from the White House and it has to come forcefully from the White House to make sure that all the agencies are working together and that one plus one equals three, because that it's the end of the, at the end of the day is the way we're gonna succeed. Steve? I think that the, the president's had up to this point to deal with the cascading crises domestically, internally, and, and those were profound. And we've made astonishing progress in the last 120 days. And it's and it's a real tribute. Um, and 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 there's still a we're crossing a pivot point right now, as Jeremy laid out in his opening remarks. We're crossing a pivot point where the Americans can have more confidence that the gains that have been made are going to stay and that our lives are going to be on a trajectory towards normality with all of the caveats that we know. We have to be vigilant and careful looking ahead. We're dealing with variants. 
waning immunity, uh, uh, still lots of ground to cover in immunizing children and immunizing those that are resistant and the like. But nonetheless, we're approaching this moment where we have much more confidence on the domestic side and the president is able to think and engage more broadly. And he's over the previous six or six weeks, six or eight weeks, there's been multiple signals along that along those lines. It's not like there hasn't been plenty of statements and signals around, yes, we understand this. The arsenal statement is is the most recent, which is a dramatic term. Um, and 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 so I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic. I think that, we have a lot of the pieces put in place by the good work that Jeremy's doing with his team at AID in concert with what's happening elsewhere at the State Department, at HHS um, and elsewhere. Um, but it's going to require um, something more because we know there's a certain resistance and reluctance to do anything that might call, that might risk what's happening on the domestic side. We need to m move beyond that resistance and create a very solid and coherent team centered out of the White House. Thank you. Jeremy, I know we're putting you in an awkward spot with all of these great, with these great opinions that of course we can make because we're not in a position of responsibility, but but I'd still, you know, having said that, I'd like to hear your thoughts. Sure, yeah. Um, no, I, I, you know, I, I think, um, at least from you know where I'm on on you know, the vantage point I have uh, inside the administration, I, I I'm not quite sure where some of this perception comes from that that the White House has been less than fully engaged. Um, you know, the, the one of the first things that the the very first national security memorandum that the president issued was on this topic. It was on global biosecurity and defeating the global pandemic. Uh, the decision to rejoin the World Health Organization was done on was signed on the afternoon of June 20. Um, the the just excuse me January 20, the, the day the president um, it was a day one action by the president, the day of the inauguration. Um, the the announcement of the two billion dollar contribution to Covax, the initial two billion dollar contribution to Covax was made by the president personally in February. Um, and uh, likewise, the you know the announcements on dose sharing um, uh, were made personally by the president. I can tell you the arsenal of vaccines comment is very much his own. You know that is his own formulation. That is that is his vision and what he wants us to achieve. So, um, so you know I, I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't kind of oversell as I, I think you guys might be slightly the the degree to which somehow the um, the, the the international is being overlooked. I think you know in terms of the relative amount that the White House has talked about the domestic, of course, they're talking about it more um, uh, because that is, you know, that is that was core to what, um, you know, core to the commitments that the president made um, uh, before he was elected, and uh, and he takes that that he takes that priority extraordinarily seriously, but he has, you know, he has given us, I think clear marching orders, starting with National Security Memorandum 1 and with his ongoing engagement, the engagement by the, his senior team at the White House, um, to go out and, you know, in the, in the words in National Security Memorandum 1 and in the, the White House's strategy to beat the pandemic. And that's what we, you know, that is the marching orders that we we have taken and that we are rolling out on. I think, you know, to the question of the, the organizational structure within the administration, um, you know, these things are always somewhat fluid. And, and as you get into the problem, you begin to you know you begin to build against what you need, and so we we I think we came in with a theory of the case on day one, um, as we have found you know what we found in terms of the trajectory of the pandemic. We're making adjustments. Um, we brought in Gail Smith to the State Department, my my old and dear friend and um, former boss, um, to uh, to to help kind of corral the overall international efforts. Um, she'll be working closely with Jeff Zients and the White House Task Force. So I think you know I think we're you know, we're, we're, we're getting that architecture into place and I wouldn't oversell the degree to which somehow we're, um, you know, we, we're, we're, we're short of the mark on that. I think that the, you know, the, the, there's a lot, the administration requested $11.5 billion and, and the ARP fought for it and got it. Um, that's a dramatic increase in resources relative to what was available um, and was sought by the administration, the prior administration last year. And of course, that's on top of another $4 billion that were given to COVAX, um, as well as then the investments by the DFC and others. So, I mean, I think we are, you know, we're rolling out a robust response and we're going to adapt, of course, and iterate as you do in good disaster management practice to what we what we find as the we, you know, as we see where the pandemic is going.
Steve, did you? Just one thought on that. I mean, the I think what we're seeing, Jeremy, is a sort of not not an underestimation of the importance of all of those things that you've mentioned, um, but rather a sense that business as usual across the board by 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 all governments is 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 not working. Uh, we've had the independent panel come forward, which uh, sketches mere, as it says, a myriad cascade of failures in 2020, um, a, a con- you know, across the board, and now a a world on fire, except for a few places that have the advantage, like the U.S., U.K., Israel, Seychelles, a few places that are that are that are building their way out of this. The rest of the world's on fire. Uh, the writings on the wall that this is a a a, a monumental set of crises, and um, and that we haven't come up with scaled responses, any of us, U.S. or others, and um, the, only the U.S. has the capacity, it seems, to me, to begin to shape the political and 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 economic marketplaces to bring a, a, some other level of response that. If you look at the G20 and you say, okay, the G20 comes together and guess what? Not much comes out of this moment in time. And I think the history books are going to look back at that and say this was yet another signal of, of failed leadership and, uh, and, and very mediocre response um, to a crisis that is raging around these members of the G20. And so I think part of the impatience that people are feeling is the sense of, yes, the U.S. is an exceptional entity. It has exceptional capacity. If you're talking about the vaccine marketplace, it's the it's the biggest player in terms of R&D, production, consumption. We've built up a production base with our private sector partners that is un, unparalleled, and, and, and we're in the midst of this. And so stepping forward at a higher level to shape the global marketplace politically and economically is 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 going is an essential moment. I think that's the, I think that's what many of us are trying to to express. You know, you know, Steve. I, I hate to bring this terminology into this conversation, but I I think we are in agreement that this is an issue of national and global security. It's not a health crisis alone. It is a security issue, and if these were battles going on in these countries, we would be behaving very differently as the United States. Our level of engagement, our asserting our global authority, power, influence would be happening at a completely different scale. But we're 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 imagining this as something that we can do in series. Like, well, let's first let's take care of the United States, and then as we kind of bring that fire under control, then we can begin to think about how we can be more helpful to people elsewhere. And I think that's where the sense of impatience comes in. When I look at India. I mean, to me, it's it's like a nuclear bomb went off in the continent, and we need to really be responding as if the threat was really that serious. Because in some say, in some sense, it is existential. Um, we need to have urgency, and we need bolder planning. Um, so, you know, I, I know I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth because on the one hand, I'm saying, you know, many good things are happening and, you know, certainly science is on our side in, in terms of what we can do with countermeasures. But on the other hand, um, we cannot be complacent because we may have tipped into a safer place in the United States. We're not safe and we won't be safe um, for a long time. So I, I you know, I, I, I share with you this, this sense of trying to amplify the urgency, but not disrespecting what's happened in the last few months because it's extraordinary and everyone understands the change has occurred. We are thinking more multilaterally, um, the G7, maybe the World Health Assembly, these are mechanisms and opportunities for us to, to really now assert ourselves and commit to that. It won't be politically easy, we know that, but you know we're in positions of influence where we can at least try to bring more people with us and you know understand what's at stake here um, as we have in other uh, global crises in the past. Let, let me let me just add to that, picking up on that, that that the place where the rubber meets the road next is the G7. And there and we know that both the G20 and the G7 haven't really stepped up to play a leadership role in the pandemic yet. They've been largely leaderless and, and almost leader proof 
and and allowed to lay fallow under President Trump. Um, and they are much maligned as talk shops. And indeed, the the recent G20 summit was relative, lar- largely true to form, um, delivering mostly platitudes and some limited action. But but let's remember that there was a time when the G7 was a platform for decisive action. In the wake of 9-11, the G7 took steps to enhance global security from hardened cockpit doors to export controls on manned portable surface-to-air missiles. And in the midst of the AIDS pandemic, it was the G7 that launched the Global Fund, putting itself in the forefront of the fight against HIV, AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis. But the commonality, the common aspect of all of those actions was that it was U.S. leadership that turned rhetoric into action. So right now, the United States should be hammering out a robust action plan for the G7 that calls for a collective commitment to sharing the maximum amount of doses possible, that calls for partnership mechanisms for cost sharing, dose sharing, tech transfer, and co-investment. The G7 is an opportunity, and we ought to seize that opportunity. Yeah, Jeremy, along those lines, You've been asked in Congress, isn't this a time for the United States to reassert its leadership role in the world? And the way the administration has responded is that it's a time for the United States to try to help you know, end the pandemic, not necessarily a time for us to reassert our leadership in terms of politics. Can't we be in a position to do both? I'm not quite sure I see the distinction you're drawing there, I guess. I mean, the president said very clearly last week, um, you know, that with our approach to, to to global vaccination and the support that's that's coming in the months uh, ahead, um, that we're going to, you know, we're going to use that as a reflection of our leadership and our values. We're not, you know, I, I think you'll see a very strong contrast in how the U.S. is approaching global vaccination and how some of our, our um, some other countries are cl- approaching it. And as the president said, we're, we're not going to trade uh, vaccines for favors. We're going to use our vaccines and our support to global vaccination to, to accelerate the end of the pandemic. Um, and I think that is, you know, we're not going to we're not going to play. We're not going to try to beat China and Russia at their game because we're not going to play the same game. Um, this is not about. Uh, in the, using vaccines as leverage for geopolitical, for kind of small-scale geopolitical tactical wins. It's it's about um, using a uh, an aggressive approach to global vaccination as a uh, as a geostrategic um, uh, a geostrategic uh, victory for the world at large. And you know the the um, so the way that we, I think the way that we tackle the pandemic is a signal of how the U.S. and how this administration seeks to operate in the world. We're going to do so in partnership. We're going to do so in working with others. Um, we're going to do so in a way that's driven by our values and that's driven by evidence and by science. And um, and so you know, I think that the I wouldn't draw a distinction as I think you you maybe did between showing kind of strategic leadership and showing um, global health leadership. I think that the way we are engaging the global health challenge is intent, you know, is, is intentionally reflective of the, the way we're trying to engage in the world more general. But are we treating it as enough of an existential crisis as, as Julie uh, pointed out before? Uh, I mean, I think, uh, I think we are putting an, an unprecedented volume of money on the table, far more than any other donor has. We're working on pulling together all of the different capabilities of the U.S. government. You know, on the uh, the work we've been doing in South Asia over the past few weeks, that was a, a combined effort between uh, USAID, the Department of Defense, the CDC, um, pulling in some of the capabilities from uh, other capabilities from Health and Human Services as well, all obviously coordinated by our embassy there in the State Department. So. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like we are we are rolling out a very robust response. Certainly, um, uh, certainly the most uh, the the most robust in terms of funding and in terms of country coverage, probably the U.S. government has ever rolled out globally. And um, and there will be more to come in the months ahead. I think we are, you know, we are we are very focused right now on taking the resources made available both through the American Rescue Plan. Um, mobilizing the full force that we that that we have available of the US government to support countries but you know at the same time 
this is not something, you know, the, and I think to take a case like India or to take some of the other countries that are really struggling, you know, ultimately the U S can't solve their, can't, can't solve every country's problem on their behalf. I think it's, it's a partnership. And so the, the Indians made have, have made very clear to us that they are, you know, they welcome our support, but also this is their, this is their challenge to lead. So the U S is not leading the response on behalf of India, the Indian government, the Indian people are leading that and we are supporting wherever we can. I think that's the posture that we're trying to adopt. Uh, we've got time just for a few final thoughts. Um, let's go around the horn real quick. Uh, Julie, can we get some final thoughts from you? Yeah, you know, it's, this is a, a situation where, again, um, we want to be maybe grateful is the right word for the change in our posture and the progress that's been made. Um, we are in a race. We've got virus and variants and vulnerability on one hand, and we've got vaccine and vigilance on the other. And it's too soon to tell how and when that race is going to be won. Um, so the strengthening of the leadership and the strengthening of the, uh, the commitments that our government is making is just really very welcome. Um, we haven't really talked about the role of the private sector in all of this because I don't think that we can ever think of this as a, a whole as a government only response. We need the um, the private sector engagement, not just for countermeasures, but for a whole host of other issues. And so um, strengthening the mechanisms by which that part of the equation is integrated into the planning, not to be called upon you know, for our intellectual property or our resources, but rather how can we bring what we know how to do well? And I'm not just talking about the pharmaceutical industry. Um, we have a lot of capabilities and capacities that could be highly relevant. Many of us are in some of the countries already that we are most interested in. And I think that's a that's an opportunity that we should probably scale and speed up as well. So um, good news is good, good direction and, and much more confidence that we can do it. Um, my concern remains that the sense of urgency um, is not going to get us as far as we need to go as fast as we need to get there in the context of the variance and the faltering vigilance that we are seeing. Um, you know, India is an extreme case in point, but I think we're beginning to see this story repeat itself in country after country. I mean, it's very worrisome. Gary, thoughts from you? Yeah, I just really wanted to thank uh, Jeremy for the tremendous work that he's doing to end the pandemic. Um, obviously, his hands are full and, and he's got his grasp, grasp on all the issues. And I wanted to thank Steve and Julie as well for all they're doing to end the pandemic. And, and as Julie just noted, what's required isn't just a whole of government approach, but a whole of nation approach. That's why we formed the COVID Collaborative, to bring people together reflecting the expertise and diversity of America to turn the tide on the pandemic. I think we've seen part of some of that reflected in this panel, government, non-governmental actors in the private sector coming together at this critical moment. And let's make no mistake about it, it is a critical moment. What we do or don't do today will affect our lives for years to come. And as I said before, we need to act boldly and urgently now um, with hard targets um, and goals set to prevent the world from splitting into vaccine haves and have nots. Um, with that kind of action, I think we can end the pandemic here and everywhere. And we can show the world, um, as Jeremy was just saying, that what US leadership about is giving relief to people, not extracting gains from people. Thanks so much for having me. Very welcome. Steve, some final thoughts from you. Thank you. Uh, we have a few extra minutes, I believe, um, here on our program. What I'd like to ask Jeremy to comment on are two issues where he has uh, particular knowledge and expertise. This week, today starts the World Health Assembly, and there's going to be a bit among the multitude of issues that will be debated over the course of this week. Then it will, of course, be a reform of WHO. Um, Jeremy served for many years and contributed substantially to the Independent Oversight and Advisory Committee, which advises the WHO Emergency Program. There's a number of issues that are on the table that we've seen outlined in the Independent Panel Report. The speed of response in declaring a public health emergency of international concern. What kind of authority to inspect and to publish results without reference to sovereign oversight. 
um, how to move to a digital system that's faster and more reliable data system, and how do we move WHO to some kind of budgetary stability where it has, you know, true capacity and it's not 30% dependent on on annual annual contributions versus 70% on earmarked money. These are these are a lot of issues to to mull over. There many of them are new issues, not new issues. They're old issues that we struggled with. I just wanted to hear, Jeremy, what would what might we what might we bring to the table in the course of this week, and what can we expect in terms of trying to get some some meaningful changes right now? In this, we're in the middle of an emergent continued emergency, but it's a it's a great moment to think about this. The other issue is CEPI, which um, the coalition. Epidemic Preparedness Innovation is a very important institution. Um, it's one that has played a critical role in COVAX. Um, it's now moving towards a multi-year approach. It wants to not just accelerate the development of vaccines for dangerous pathogens that the marketplace is not attending to, but also to look at therapies, diagnostics. It wants to look at innovations in manufacturing. It wants to look at variants, vaccine variant, preparing for vaccine variants. And it's looking for the U.S. to support it and become a strong partner. There's a $300 million slot in the American Rescue Plan, uh, which there was some expectation that that would be going towards CEPI. There's a proposal for a multi-year contribution over five years, $200 million per year. There are obviously questions around absorptive capacity and the like, but I'd like anything you can tell us in terms of how the administration is looking at this moment in time where this new, this this institution created with Julie's input and others scarcely four years ago. It was launched four years ago, and it's it has a record of achievement, but we're at another one of those moments of creating new things in the midst of all of this, and how do we move forward? So those are big, big questions, I realize, Jeremy, but if you can offer just some short answers, give us some insight. I yeah, realize we could talk through. all day about all of these. Let me just run through that in 30 seconds, Steve. Just a few um, small questions. Uh, on, so <laughs> on CEPI, um, I mean, look, I'm not going to get into kind of specifics of potential awards um, in a in a uh, in an open panel, but um, but I will just say I think you know we see we see a lot of value in the work that CEPI is doing. I think we've been having extraordinarily useful and important conversations with them as we are looking to better understand the landscape for scaling up global vaccine production, particularly some of these issues around how to optimize uh, available supplies and inputs for the production of vaccines, uh, an area where they've been doing really important work and where we're looking to provide more support. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, just would, would absolutely agree on the important role that CEPI is playing. Um, on some of the, just on a few of the other points that you, you've raised on the World Health Assembly, um, this is gonna be an important moment to take stock of uh, several of these important reports that have come out. Obviously the, the IOAC report that I helped to contribute to in my role on the committee, um, the IPPPR report has put forward some really, really, I think bold and interesting ideas. Some of the, some of the, um, some of the most forward leaning that we've seen. But there's going to be a lot, and most of the hard work still lies ahead. It's uh, this is this is the moment where member states are going to be hearing those inputs, beginning to deliberate on those inputs, and then over the over the coming months, uh, hashing through and negotiating through what that all adds up to as we take those proposals and begin to explore how best to translate those into um, the reforms that we want to see to the system. And as I as I mentioned uh, in my prepared remarks, some of the some of the issues that we're particularly seized with are this question of, of early warning, the questions of transparency and shielding all of those decisions as much as we can from some of the political pressures that WHO is off is so often under. Um, uh, just the last thing I want to I want to pick up on. I didn't say enough about this in my earlier remarks, but I do want to emphasize what what Julie said about the importance of private sector engagement. Uh, we have seen. So I come out of a disaster response background, and I'm very accustomed when there's an earthquake or a hurricane somewhere to USAID getting calls from private sector companies saying, "Hey, we want to you know we want to do something helpful. What can we do?" And they'll you know they'll give a few hundred thousand dollars here or there. I think what we're seeing here. Um, on the South Asia response, but I think it will translate to the larger global response, is just really of an entirely different character. We're seeing the private sector step up and take ownership of the need to end the pandemic in ways that are, are unprecedented, certainly in my career. Um, 
And so we've been working closely with the U.S. Chamber and uh, with um, with numerous companies now to figure out how do we best take advantage of that? How, how can the U.S. government uh, and the, the U.S. and global private sectors really partner in a way where, where we're working together? This is not just the U.S. sort of giving tips to companies on how to effectively donate. This is really uh, of a different scale and character where they are they are taking ownership and really investing in this not as a social responsibility thing, but as a as a business investment. They see the business value and the business more than value. I mean, the imperative for their businesses of ending this pandemic. And so, um, you know, how we we're in kind of uncharted territory into how we partner and how we leverage that together. But I think it's a hugely encouraging moment and one that we are uh, we're we're getting ourselves positioned to take full advantage of. I want to thank everybody today. Um, Jeremy, thank you so much for all of your time. Um, I know you're busy, to say the least. Um, I want to say um, this has been an cr- incredible panel. And being that CSIS is you know, the premier bipartisan um, institution in the world, this is a terrific bipartisan panel. We have people who have served in different administrations across the aisle, and it's really refreshing to see a, a bipartisan discussion like this. So thanks to all of our panelists for their insights today. Uh, Jeremy, we'll uh, we'll be in touch with you. Thank you very much to our audience for tuning in. And uh, today there will be this this uh, presentation will be available on demand, and there will be a transcript as well. Um, so you can see all of that at csis.org. Coronavirus crisis update is produced by Liz Bulver and Samantha Chivers. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS 2021 on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts. Thank you.